Chapter Twenty Eight, Part One of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter Twenty Eight, Part One. E.O. Though Clarence Harvey was not much disposed to see either Virginia or her father whilst he was in the state of perturbation into which he had been thrown by his interview with Belinda, yet he did not delay to send his servant home with a note to Mrs. Ormond to say that he would meet Mr. Hartley whenever he pleased at his lawyer's to make whatever arrangements might be necessary for proper settlements. As he saw no possibility of receding with honour, he, with becoming resolution, desired to urge things forward as fast as possible, and to strengthen in his mind the sense of the necessity of the sacrifice that he was bound to make. His passions were naturally impetuous, but he had by persevering efforts brought them under the subjection of his reason. His power over himself was now to be put to a severe trial. As he was going to town, he met Lord Delacour, who was riding in the park. He was extremely intent upon his own thoughts, and was anxious to pass unnoticed. In former times this would have been the most feasible thing imaginable, for Lord Delacour used to detest the sight of Clarence Harvey, whom he considered as the successor of Colonel Lawless in his lady's favour. But his opinion and his feelings had been entirely changed by the perusal of those letters, which were perfumed with ottar of roses. Even this perfume had from that association become agreeable to him. He now accosted Clarence with a warmth and cordiality in, in his manner that at any other moment must have pleased as much as it surprised him. But Clarence was not in a humour to enter into conversation. "'You seem to be in a haste, Mr. Harvey.' said his lordship, observing his impatience. But as I know your good nature, I shall make no scruple to detain you a quarter of an hour. As he spoke, he turned his horse, and rode with Clarence, who looked as if he wished that his lordship had been more scrupulous, and that he had not such a reputation for good nature. "'You will not refuse me this quarter of an hour, I am sure,' continued Lord Delacour, "'when you hear that, by favouring me with your attention,' You may perhaps materially serve an old or rather a young friend of yours, and one whom I fancied was a particular favourite. I mean Miss Belinda Portman. At the name of Belinda Portman, Clarence Harvey became all attention. He assured his lordship that he was in no haste, and all his difficulty now was to moderate the eagerness of his curiosity. We can take a turn or two in the park as well as anywhere, said his lordship. "'Nobody will overhear us, and the sooner you know what I have to say, the better.' "'Certainly,' said Clarence. The most malevolent person upon earth could not have tired poor Clarence's patience more than good-natured Lord Delacour contrived to do. With the best intentions possible, by his habitual circumlocution, he descanted at length upon the difficulties, as the world goes, of meeting with a confidential friend whom it is prudent to trust in any affair that demands delicacy, honour, and address. 
Men of talents were often, he observed, devoid of integrity, and men of integrity devoid of talents. When he had obtained Hervey's assent to this proposition, he next paid him sundry handsome but long-winded compliments. Then he complimented himself for having just thought of Mr. Harvey as the fittest person he could apply to. Then he congratulated himself upon his good luck in meeting with the very man he was just thinking of. At last, after Clarence had returned thanks for all his kindness, and had given assent to all his lordship's truisms, the substance of the business came out. Lord Delacour informed Mr. Harvey that he had been lately commissioned by Lady Delacour to discover what attractions drew a Mr. Vincent so constantly to Mrs. Luttridge's. Here he was going to explain who Mr. Vincent was, but Clarence assured him that he knew perfectly well that he had been a ward of Mr. Percival's, that he was a West Indian of large fortune, etc. "'And a lover of Miss Portman's, that is the most material part of the story to me,' continued Lord Delacour, "'for otherwise, you know, Mr. Vincent would be no more to me than any other gentleman. But in that point of view, I mean as a lover of Belinda Portman, and I may say not quite unlikely to be her husband, he is highly interesting to my Lady Delacour, and to me, and to you, as Miss Portman's well-wisher, doubtless.' "'Doubtless!' was all Mr. Harway could reply. "'Now you must know,' continued his lordship, "'that Lady Delacour has, for a woman, an uncommon share of penetration, and can put things together in a wonderful way. In short, it has come to her, my Lady Delacour's knowledge, that before Miss Portman was at Oakley Park last summer, and after she left it this autumn, Mr. Vincent was a constant visitor at Mrs. Luttridge's whilst at Harrogate, and used to play high, though unknown to the Percivals, of course, at billiards with Mr. Luttridge. A man I confess I disliked always, even when I carried the election for them. But no matter, it is not from enmity I speak now, but it is very well known that Luttridge has but a small fortune, and yet lives as if he had a large one and all the young men who like high play are sure to be well received at his house. Now I hope Mr. Vincent is not well received on that footing. Since my Lady Delacour and I have been such good friends, continued his lordship, I have dropped all connection with the Luttridges, so cannot go there myself. Moreover, I do not wish to be tempted to lose any more thousands to the lady. But you never play, and you are not likely to be tempted to it now, so you will oblige me and Lady Delacour if you will go to Luttridge's to-night. She's always charmed to see you, and you will easily discover how the land dies. Mr. Vincent is certainly a very agreeable, open-hearted young man. But if he game, God forbid that Miss Portman should ever be his wife. God forbid, said Clarence Harvey. The man, resumed Lord Delacour, must in my opinion be very superior indeed, who is deserving of Belinda Portman. Oh, Mr. Harvey, you do not, you cannot know her merit, as I do. It is one thing, sir, to see a fine girl in a ballroom, and another, quite another, to live in the house with her for months, and to see her as I have seen Belinda Portman, in everyday life, as one may call it 
then it is one can judge of the real temper, manners, and character. And never woman had so sweet a temper, such charming manners, such a fair, open, generous, decided, yet gentle character, as this Miss Portman. "'Your lordship speaks con amore,' said Clarence. "'I speak, Mr. Harvey, from the bottom of my soul,' cried Lord Delacour, pulling in his horse and stopping short. I should be an unfeeling, ungrateful brute, if I were not sensible of the obligations, yet the obligations, which my Lady Delacour and I have received from Belinda Portman. Why, sir, she has been the peacemaker between us, but we will not talk of that now. Let us think of her affairs. If Mr. Vincent once gets into Mr. Luttridge's cursed set, there's no knowing where it will end. I speak from my own experience, for I really never was fond of high play, and yet when I got into that set I could not withstand it. I lost by hundreds and thousands, and so will he, before he is aware of it, no doubt. Mrs. Luttridge will look upon him as her dupe, and make him such. I always, but this is between ourselves, suspected that I did not lose my last thousand to her fairly. Now, Harry, you know the whole. Do try and save Mr. Vincent for Belinda Portman's sake. Clarence Harvey shook hands with Lord Delacour with a sentiment of real gratitude and affection, and assured him that his confidence was not misplaced. His lordship little suspected that he had been soliciting him to save his rival. Clarence's love was not of that selfish sort, which the moment it is deprived of hope sinks into indifference, or is converted into hatred. Belinda could not be his, but in the midst of the bitterest regret he was supported by the consciousness of his own honour and generosity. He felt a noble species of delight in the prospect of promoting the happiness of the woman upon whom his fondest affections had been fixed, and he rejoiced to feel that he had sufficient magnanimity to save a rival from ruin. He was even determined to make that rival his friend, notwithstanding the prepossession which, he clearly perceived, Mr. Vincent felt against him. "'His jealousy will be extinguished the moment he knows my real situation,' said Clarence to himself. "'He will be convinced that I have a soul, incapable of envy. And if he suspect my love for Belinda, he will respect the strength of mind with which I can command my passions.' I take it for granted that Mr. Vincent must possess a heart and understanding such as I should desire in a friend, or he could never be what he is to Belinda. Full of these generous sentiments, Clarence waited with impatience for the hour when he might present himself at Mrs. Luttridge's. He went there so early in the evening that he found the drawing-room quite empty. The company who had been invited to dine had not yet left the dining-room, and the servants had but just set the card-tables and lighted the candles. Mr. Harvey desired that nobody should be disturbed by his coming so early, and fortunately Mrs. Luttridge was detained some minutes by Lady Newland's lingering glass of Madeira. In the meantime Clarence executed his design, from his former observations, and from the hints that Lord Delacour had let fall. He suspected that there was sometimes in this house not only high play, but foul play. 
he recollected that once when he played there at billiards he had perceived that the table was not perfectly horizontal and it occurred to him that perhaps the eo table might be so contrived as to put the fortunes of all who played at it in the power of the proprietor clarence had sufficient ingenuity to invent the method by which this might be done and he had the infallible means in his possession of detecting the fraud the e o table was in an apartment adjoining to the drawing-room he found his way to it and he discovered beyond a possibility of doubt that it was constructed for the purposes of fraud his first impulse was to tell this immediately to mr vincent to put him on his guard but upon reflection he determined to keep his discovery to himself till he was satisfied whether that gentleman had or had not any passion for play if he have thought clarence it is of the utmost consequence to miss portman that he should early in life receive a shock that may leave an indelible impression upon his mind to save him a few hours of remorse i will not give up the power of doing him the most essential service i will let him go on if he be so inclined to the very verge of ruin and despair i will let him feel all the horrors of a gamester's fate before i tell him that i have the means to save him mrs luttridge must when i call upon her refund whatever he may lose she will not brave public shame she cannot stand a public prosecution scarcely had clarence arranged his scheme when he heard the voices of the ladies who were coming upstairs mrs luttridge made her appearance accompanied by a very pretty modish affected young lady miss annabella luttridge her niece her little coquettish airs were lost upon clarence harvey whose eye was intently fixed upon the door watching for the entrance of mr vincent he was one of the dinner-party and he came up soon after the ladies he seemed prepared for the sight of mr harvey to whom he bowed with a cold haughty air and then addressed himself to miss annabel luttridge who showed the most obvious desire to attract his attention from all that passed this evening mr harvey was led to suspect notwithstanding the reasons which made it apparently improbable that the fair annabella was the secret cause of mr vincent's frequent visits at her aunt's it was natural that clarence should be disposed to this opinion from the circumstances of his own situation during three hours that he stayed at mrs luttridge's mr vincent never joined any of the parties at play but just as he was going away he heard some one say how comes it vincent that you've been idle all night this question revived mr harvey's suspicions and uncertain what report he should make to lord delacour he resolved to defer making any till he had farther opportunities of judging when mr harvey asked himself how it was possible that the pupil of mr percival could become a gamester he forgot that mr vincent had not been educated by his guardian that he had lived in the west indies till he was eighteen and that he had only been under the care of mr percival for a few years after his habits and character were in a great measure formed the taste for gambling he had acquired whilst he was a child but as it was then confined to trifles it had been passed over as a thing of no consequence a boyish folly that would never grow up with him 
His father used to see him day after day, playing with eagerness at games of chance, with his negroes or with the sons of neighboring planters. Yet he was never alarmed. He was too intent upon making a fortune for his family to consider how they would spend it and he did not foresee that this boyish fault might be the means of his son's losing in a few hours the wealth which he had been many years amassing. When young Vincent came over to England, Mr. Percival had not immediate opportunities of discovering this particular foible in his ward, but he perceived that in his mind there was that presumptuous belief in his special good fortune which naturally leads to the love of gambling. Instead of lecturing him, his guardian appealed to his understanding, and took opportunities of showing him the ruinous effects of high play in real life. Young Vincent was touched, and, as he thought, convinced, but his emotion was stronger than his conviction. His feelings were always more powerful than his reason. His detestation of the selfish character of a gamester was felt and expressed with enthusiasm and eloquence and his indignation rose afterwards at the slightest hint that he might ever in future be tempted to become what he abhorred. Unfortunately he disdained prudence, as the factitious virtue of inferior minds. He thought that the feelings of a man of honour were to be his guide in the first and last appeal, and for his conduct through life, as a man and as a gentleman, he proudly professed to trust to the sublime instinct of a good heart. His guardian's doubts of the infallibility and even of the existence of this moral instinct wounded Mr. Vincent's pride instead of alarming his understanding, and he was rather eager than averse to expose himself to the danger, that he might prove his superiority to the temptation. How different are the feelings in different situations! Yet often, as this has been repeated, how difficult it is to impress the truth upon inexperienced sanguine minds. Whilst young Vincent was immediately under his guardian's eye at Oakley Park, his safety from vice appeared to him inglorious. He was impatient to sally forth into the world, confident rather of his innate than acquired virtue. When he first became acquainted with Mrs. Luttridge at Harrogate, he knew that she was a professed gambler, and he despised the character. Yet, without reflecting on the danger, or perhaps for the pleasure of convincing Mr. Percival that he was superior to it, he continued his visits. For some time he was a passive spectator. Billiards, however, was a game of address, not chance. There was a billiard-table at Oakley Park, as well as at Mr. Luttridge's, and he played with his guardian. Why, then, should he not play with Mr. Luttridge? He did play. His skill was admired. He betted, and his bets were successful. But he did not call this gaming, for the bets were not to any great amount, and it was only playing at billiards. Mr. Percival was delayed in town some weeks longer than usual, and he knew nothing of the manner in which his young friend spent his time. As soon as Mr. Vincent heard of his arrival at Oakley Park, he left half-finished his game at billiards, and fortunately for him the charms of Belinda made him forget for some months that such a thing as a billiard-table existed. All that had happened at Mr. Luttridge's 
passed from his mind as a dream and whilst his heart was agitated by his new passion he could scarcely believe that he had ever been interested by any other feelings he was surprised when he accidentally recollected the eagerness with which he used to amuse himself in mr luttridge's company but he was certain that all this was past for ever and precisely because he was under the dominion of one strong passion he thought he could never be under the dominion of another thus persisting in his disdain of reason as a moral guide mr vincent thought acted and suffered as a man of feeling scarcely had belinda left oakley park for one week when the ennui consequent to violent passion became insupportable and to console himself for her absence he flew to the billiard-table emotion of some kind or other was become necessary to him he said that not to feel was not to live and soon the suspense the anxiety the hopes the fears the perpetual vicissitudes of a gamester's life seemed to him almost as delightful as those of a lover's deceived by these appearances mrs luttridge thought that his affection for belinda either was or might be conquered and her hopes of obtaining his fortune for her niece annabella revived as mr vincent could not endure mrs freke she abstained at her friend's particular desire from appearing at her house whilst he was there and mrs luttridge interested him much in her own favour by representing her indignation at harriet's conduct to be such that it had occasioned a total breach in their friendship mrs freke's sudden departure from harrogate confirmed the probability of this quarrel yet these two ladies were secretly leagued together in a design of breaking off mr vincent's match with belinda against whom mrs freke had vowed revenge the anonymous letter which she hoped would work her purpose produced however an effect totally unexpected upon his generous mind he did not guess the writer but his indignation against such base accusations burst forth with a violence that astounded mrs luttridge his love for belinda appeared ten times more enthusiastic than before the moment she was accused he felt himself her defender as well as her lover he was dispossessed of the evil spirit of gambling as if by a miracle and the billiard-table and mrs luttridge and miss annabella vanished from his view he breathed nothing but love he would ask no permission he would wait for none from belinda he declared that instant he would set out in search of her and he would tear that infamous letter to atoms in her presence he would show her how impossible suspicion was to his nature the first violence of the hurricane mrs luttridge could not stand and thought not of opposing but whilst his horses and curricle were getting ready she took such an affectionate leave of his dog juba and she protested so much that she and annabella should not know how to live without poor juba that mr vincent who was excessively fond of his dog could not help sympathizing in their sorrow reasoning just as well as they wished he extended his belief in their affection for this animal to friendship if not love for his master he could not grant mrs luttridge's earnest supplication to leave the dog behind him under her protection but he promised and laid his hand upon his heart when he promised that juba should wait upon mrs luttridge as soon as she went to town 
This appointment being made, Miss Annabella permitted herself to be somewhat consoled. It would be injustice to admit that she did all that could be done by a cambric handkerchief to evince delicate sensibility in this parting scene. Mrs. Luttridge also deserves her share of praise for the manner in which she reproved her niece for giving way to her feelings, and for the address with which she wished to heaven that poor Annabella had the calm philosophic temper of which Miss Portman was, she understood, a most uncommon example. As Mr. Vincent drew toward London, he reflected upon these last words, and he could not help thinking that if Belinda had more faults she would be more amiable. End of chapter 28 Part 1 Read by Lars Rolander